But we must, if we are to find ourselves acceptable at the judgment seat of the Son of God, to acknowledge God in all our ways and ask that he would direct our path. In the third chapter of Acts, the 19th verse, we are told, preceding this verse, of the things which God has done in dealing with his people and of the things which must take place in the life and the death of Christ and of the promises which will be fulfilled thereafter. And we are told that in view of the consideration of these things, to repent ye therefore and be converted that your sins may be blotted out when the times of refreshing shall come from the presence of the Lord. And he goes on to say, And he shall send Jesus Christ, which before was preached unto you, whom the heaven must receive until the times of restitution of all things which God has spoken by the mouth of all his holy prophets since the world began. Now it is in a consideration of what God has said has taken place in the past and what we know from his word he has said will take place in the future that we take stock of ourselves and we remember the passage of scripture which says all scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine or for teaching for reproof or correction and finally for instruction in righteousness we must first recognize in the sequence as it's given in that verse that we must know what God has written for our learning we must first be taught we must first see some sense in our becoming concerned with these things for doctrine for reproof we must next recognize that the way in which man naturally walks is not pleasing and acceptable in the sight of God there is a way that seemeth right unto a man but the end thereof are the ways of death and if death is all we want then it is quite sufficient to do what comes natural if death is all we want but we must next come to the step of correction we must recognize that in view of what God has said he will do with the earth and with man upon it in view of what he has said is our natural condition which is not acceptable unto him we must then begin to recognize that certain things are necessary on our part there must be correction and finally there is instruction in righteousness which by the way is the process which does not end this side of the judgment 
This side of immortality we shall require at all times the instruction in righteousness which can only come from God. Now, we are told in Matthew 18 that there is a certain spirit in which we must approach this subject of conversion. We must recognize, as we've said, that first off, we are not satisfactory to God in our present state or in our present condition and with what we now have to offer. We are not entirely acceptable unto him and we must do something about it if we are to receive the gift of everlasting life which he holds out to us. Now, we next find that there is a way in which this is done. We do it through a familiarity with his words, but there's something required of us other than just learning. In the 18th chapter of Matthew, the third and fourth verses, we read the words of Christ, in which he says, Verily I say unto you, Except ye be converted and become as little children, ye shall not enter into the kingdom of heaven. Whosoever, therefore, shall humble himself as this little child, the same is greatest in the kingdom of heaven. Now, we all remember the words of Christ in the model prayer he gave to his followers, in which he said, Our Father, which art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Now how do you suppose it is possible for the will of God to be done on earth as it is now done in heaven, except that it be done when it will be done, when thy kingdom come, when that day arrives and by the grace of God we hope to have a part therein, we shall do the will of God in a completely selfless way. It will be because we have been able to humble ourselves as little children to accept in great faith all the things which God has revealed unto us and to follow in complete obedience the things that he has required of us. Now, God knows our faith. He knows we make mistakes. He knows there are times when we do not quite reach that mark. We do not quite do all that is required of us at any one time. And so he has given unto us a faithful and a merciful high priest who has been touched in every respect by the things to which the flesh is heir. And so he knows and he understands in a way that no one else should what a trial we are undergoing and what a tribulation this life can be. For when it says in Scripture that Christ learned obedience by the things he suffered or through the things he suffered, it does not mean that he ever knew disobedience, but it does mean that he knew the real meaning of conversion. He knew the real meaning of complete overcoming in every respect, in every trial, in every detail of his entire life. He knew the real meaning of obedience 
because he learned it through the many things he suffered in this life. We're also told that even having come into the truth, it is possible for us to falter to such an extent that these words are applicable. Brethren, if any of you do err from the truth and one convert him, let him know that he which converteth the sinner from the error of his way shall save a soul from death and shall hide a multitude of sins. God has provided a means at all stages in our lives. He has told us how we can come into his presence acceptably in the final analysis. Now there are three particularly interesting cases of conversion in the scripture that we'd like to look at. One of them is a very gradual kind of thing. In 2 Timothy 3, we find a man who, to our knowledge, has never been converted in a spectacular way or in a dramatic way, but we're told that Paul speaks to Timothy in these words, from a child thou hast known the Holy Scriptures which are able to make thee wise unto salvation through faith which is in Christ Jesus. And then he quotes, gives the scripture which we just quoted, all scripture is given by inspiration of God. In other words, in view of the fact that you have known this, these scriptures, this is what they can do for you. They're given by inspiration of God and are profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness. And he gives the purpose for which these things were given us by God. That the man of God may be perfect or complete, thoroughly furnished unto all good works. Timothy grew up in a way which we would call the nurture and admonition of the Lord. He learned certainly, as we're told in other references, from his grandmother, through his mother. He learned from a child the Holy Scriptures, those which were able to make one wise unto salvation through faith in Jesus Christ. Now, so far as Timothy is concerned, there is no indication that he faltered. There's no indication that it was necessary for any great a convincing work to be done by God in his case. He happened to be a man who presumably had that mind from early childhood, which was able to be receptive to the things and the thoughts of the Lord. There's another case, perhaps a little bit more dramatic, in Acts 26. The Apostle Paul is speaking to King Agrippa, and starting with the ninth verse, he says, I verily thought with myself, he's telling about, he is explaining to Agrippa the exact uh, happenings on the occasion of his conversion. I verily thought with myself that I ought to do many things contrary to the name of Jesus of Nazareth 
which thing also I did in Jerusalem. And many of the saints did I shut up in prison, having received authority from the chief priests. And when they were put to death, I gave my voice against them. And I punished them off in every synagogue, and compelled them to blaspheme, and being exceedingly mad against them, I persecuted them even unto strange cities. Whereupon, and here begins the turning point in his life, there was no lack of zeal. There was no lack of enthusiasm. There was no lack of emotion. There was no lack of any of these outward manifestations that we so often associate with the idea of conversion. There certainly was no lack of a scrupulous compliance with the law on the part of Paul. But something was lacking. Whereupon, as I went to Damascus with authority and commission from the chief priest, at midday, O king, I saw the way, in the way, a light from heaven, and it was so bright that it was above the brightness of the sun, shining round about me and them which journeyed with me. And when we were all fallen to the earth, I heard a voice speaking unto me and saying in the Hebrew tongue, Saul, Saul, why persecutest thou me? It is hard for thee to kick against the pricks. And I said, Who art thou, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus, whom thou persecutest. Now here's a man who had never laid eyes on Jesus before. And Jesus said unto him, I am Jesus, whom thou persecutest. And he tells him, it is hard for thee to kick against the pricks. Something, we might say, is bothering you. There's a conflict there. Here is a man who is utterly righteous by all the standards he knew, completely emotional and completely zealous of every good work and willing to do anything which was required of him to do what he thought was right. And Jesus says, you're persecuting me. And in another reference in Scripture, we are given the clue to the meaning of this. When Christ tells us that if you do anything to the, any of the least of these, my brethren, you do it unto me. And here was Paul even putting them to death. He was placing upon them tribulations of every kind. But something bothered him. Something was going on in his mind. And God, in the person here of Christ, used this opportunity to speak to him and to set him straight. Rise and stand upon thy feet. For I have appeared unto thee for this purpose. This was the purpose for which Christ on this occasion appeared to the Apostle Paul. And note these words carefully. To make thee a minister and a witness, both of these things which thou hast seen and of those things into which I will appear unto thee. 
Remember, he speaks of himself in another place as having been as one born out of due time, and that it was necessary on several occasions that the Lord gives him visions explaining some things he did not know. Delivering thee from the people and from the Gentiles, unto whom now I send thee. Gentiles, a mission for which the Apostle Paul was converted in a very dramatic way. A man who was completely righteous by all the standards of the people from whom Christ came. And it was necessary that God appear unto Christ, I beg your pardon, that Christ appear unto him in this very convincing way and say, I have a purpose for which I'm coming to you now, and I have a mission for you. I shall deliver you from the people and from the Gentiles and send you to them to open their eyes and to turn them from darkness to light, and from the power of Satan unto God, that they, the Gentiles, the Gentiles may receive forgiveness of sins and inheritance among them which are sanctified by faith that is in me. That was the mission of Christ of Paul for Christ. The commission given to Paul by Jesus was that he could go to the Gentiles and open their eyes to turn them from darkness to light. Now isn't that very much akin to the mission for which Christ was sent into the world? That men should come out of darkness and into light. And that all men for the first time, because up to his time only the Jews in a very certain way, had an opportunity to have his eyes open and to receive forgiveness for his sins. But now Christ says to Paul, I'm sending you to the Gentiles to open their eyes, to turn them from darkness to light, in order that they may receive forgiveness of sins. And brethren, that's the only means whereby it was possible then for us to be here today because Christ did appear to Paul. And as Christ himself prayed in the 17th chapter of John, he said, I don't pray just for these few that you've given me here, but to all who should come through their works to know the way of life. It was through the work of the apostles of Christ, one of which here as out of due time was Paul. That conversion from darkness to light, from a condition in which we would die into a condition in which life is possible, that this was brought to us. Now, there's one more, uh, and that's the example of the Apostle Peter in Luke 22. I'd like to turn to for just a moment. Starting with the 32nd verse. Just prior to the incident in the garden and the crucifixion, Christ says to Peter, 
starting with the 31st. The Lord said, Simon, Simon, behold, Satan hath desired to have you, that he may sift you as wheat. But I have prayed for thee, that thy faith fail not. Have you thought of the possibility that if Christ had not prayed for Peter, that Peter would have been lost? But I have prayed for thee, and it's certainly the most wonderful person who could possibly offer a prayer in our behalf. The most effective prayer, because the effectual fervent prayer of a righteous man availeth much. And there could be none more righteous than Christ himself. I have prayed for thee that thy faith fail not. Christ, being a prophet, knew that there would be a great need for faith on the part of Peter. And that although he had known all these messages, all these sermons, all these things that Christ had said, had been said in Peter's presence, he knew that there would be a time when it would be very easy for Peter's faith to fail. And so I have prayed for thee that thy faith fail not. And then a very strange thing to say after three years or so of association. And when thou art converted, drink thy breath. When thou art converted, strengthen thy brethren. And on this note, I'd like now to give the last section of these words. When thou art converted, strengthen thy brethren. In order to give strength, there must be strength. And in order for there to be a gift of spiritual strength, there has to be spiritual strength. And it's an interesting thing, perhaps we can view it somewhat in a, a parallel with an electrical device, in which there's a coil of wire which has a great deal of electrical current passing through it and a, a great amount of electrical strength or energy. And into that we place another coil from which we don't, we, not into which we intend to place strength, but from which we hope to get strength. There's an inductive process. The first coil doesn't lose a thing in order to give strength to the second. And that's the way it is with our strengthening our brethren. Actually, we gain spiritually from the work of strengthening our brethren. But to do it, we must be converted in the sense in which it was necessary that the Apostle Peter be converted. And we must recognize that the prayers of Christ were with us in order that our faith fail not. Because as we are disciples and we are endeavoring to do the work of God, we know that we must have his help. It is not in man that walketh to direct his steps. Now let's turn to the 55th of Isaiah. <coughs> I'd like to read, starting with the sixth verse. Seek ye the Lord while he may be found. Call ye upon him while he is near. Let the wicked forsake his way 
and the unrighteous man his thoughts, and let him return unto the Lord, and he will have mercy upon him. And to our God, for he will abundantly pardon. Let the wicked forsake his way, and the unrighteous man his thoughts, and return unto the Lord. Now, we must forsake the way, we must forsake the thoughts, and we must turn to the Lord in order to know the blessedness of mercy which can be extended unto us from God. And then he sets us very straight in our thinking, very straight. He's completely realistic in his viewing of the nature of man and of the obstacles which lie before him. For my thoughts are not your thoughts. Why else would it be necessary to return unto the Lord? If our thoughts were God's thoughts, there'd be no returning to do. If the thoughts of God were naturally the thoughts of man, there'd be no wickedness. There'd be no unrighteousness. There'd be no need for pardon. But God's thoughts are not the thoughts of man. And the ways of God are not the ways of man. He says, neither are your ways my ways, saith the Lord. And here he shows us how tremendously different they really are. And this is something we should keep before our eyes all the time. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so far removed are the standards of thought and of way of God from those of man. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways. It isn't just a case of distance. There's nothing horizontal about this. It's completely vertical. As the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways. Not just different. Man's ways are base, and God's ways are exalted. So are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. By way of letting us know why it is necessary to come to him, and to be converted from our way unto his way, he says, because there's a great difference. And it's a vertical difference. My way is higher. My thoughts are higher. And then, in view of that symbolism, or that figure, if we'll keep this in our minds, he goes on to say, for as the rain cometh down, not sideways, you've never seen it rain sideways, there's a beautiful figure in this, and it's completely appropriate to the message God is bringing. As the rain cometh down and the snow, which is even more gentle from heaven, and returneth not thither, you've never seen it rain up, but watereth the earth, and maketh it bring forth and bud, that it may give seed to the sowers, and bread 
to the east. Now get that into our minds for a moment. Rain comes down and snow from heaven. It enters the earth and waters. Not because the ground needs to be dampened, but because beyond those stages there are some other things that are important to God. It is necessary that seed be brought to the sower and bread to the eater. And so God uses this means of watering the earth and he gives from above, not from someplace else. He comes down with rain and snow from heaven and waters the earth and gives seed to the sower and bread to the eater. And that little conjunction, so, is highly important to an understanding of these passages. So shall my word be that goeth forth out of my mouth. It shall not return unto me void, but it shall accomplish that which I please, and it shall prosper in the thing whereto I sent it. As the rain comes down from heaven, so shall my word be that goeth forth from my mouth. As the rain comes not up, so neither shall my word return unto me void. But it shall enter the earth and dampen it and water it and nourish it and dissolve the nutriment which is naturally there. So that the nutriment which otherwise is useless to the seed will make it possible that seed may be given to the sower and bread to the eater. Now, the word of God comes down into our hearts and dampens them a bit, softens them, if you will, and dissolves the nutrients, makes it possible that there be seed to the sower and bread to the eater. The word of God was not written to be quoted back to him. However good our understanding of the scripture may be, if all we can do is quote it, then we may find ourselves some instruction in 1 Corinthians 13. If all we can do with the word of God is recite it precisely, if all we can do is intellectually grasp the fundamentals of conversion without knowing the feeling behind it, then indeed we may find ourselves as sounding brass and as tinkling cymbals. But the word of God must enter into our hearts and thoughts, and it must be given back to God not as words, not as beautiful rhetoric, not as great literature. No, God has something to say, as a matter of fact, about the men who smooth their tongues. What God wants is seed to the sower and bread to the eater. He wants our hearts, softened by the word of God, to bring forth lives which are exemplary of the principles contained in that word. Plants come up out of the ground, and so it is with our hearts. We begin to look like children of God. We begin to show the results of a softened heart, of a nourished heart, nourished by the way of God which is higher than ours, and the thoughts of God which are much higher than our thoughts. Now, he goes on to say, For ye shall go out with joy and be led forth with peace. The mountain 
and the hills shall break forth before you into singing, and all the trees of the field shall clap their hands. Now, this next verse is not just poetry. It isn't just good grammar or nice-sounding words, because the Word of God was not given for that purpose, and if that's all he gets from us, then his word has returned unto him void. But it must enter our hearts and do something. When thou art converted, and only then, can we strengthen our brethren. Instead of the thorn shall come up the fir tree, and instead of the briar shall come up the myrtle tree, and it shall be to the Lord for a name, for an everlasting sign that shall not be cut off. That is in poetry. In place of a thing which grows in practically arid land without any nourishment, without any moisture, in the hardest crusted soil you would choose, you can grow thorns and briars. From hard-hearted hearts, hard-crusted hearts, it is possible for us to do several things, but we won't get any myrtle trees, and we won't get any curses. Instead of the one, we must be converted and produce the other. Instead of the thorns shall come up the fir trees, and those trees only grow where there's lots of water. Instead of the briar shall come up the myrtle tree, and those trees are rather selective about where they grow. There are only two places in the world where they'll grow, and both of those have a lot of water. The soil of our hearts must be moist, must be soft, must be carefully cultivated, the weeds must be eliminated, and we must return unto the sower seed, and unto the eater bread. The word of God must not return unto him void. It will accomplish that whereto he sends it, and that thing which he pleases. Now, finally, apropos of, of what we've been saying here, I'd like you to read carefully the statement that the work of the flesh I'll see if I can quote this the work of the flesh are these I, I, I can't recall the, the order in which these go but you, you, I'm sure you know this passage and I'd like you to read it carefully afterward yourself there is a list of things which we are told are the worst. The normal outgrowth, the thorns and the briars of a hard heart and of the normal human flesh. They're all worst. None of them are qualities. But we're told, but the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, long-suffering, and so forth. Read it carefully. None of those things 
or works. Every one of those things is an inward quality which has to produce good works. But instead of God telling us to replace a bad work with a good work, he tells us to replace the bad work, which is obvious manifestation of a bad quality within, with a good quality within, because he knows there's an intermediary state, carefully typified by the Pharisees, in which it's between bad qualities and good qualities, there were bad works and good works. And it was quite possible in the Pharisee to have good works prompted not from a heart that was right within. And so God doesn't tell us just to have an outward manifestation of goodness. He tells us that it's necessary to go further and get the quality. Get the quality. The fruit of the Spirit. The natural result of having the spirit of Christ within us is love, joy, peace, long-suffering, and so forth. And finally, in that way, can we be truly converted. And in that way is it possible for him to say that these things shall be to him for a sign and for an everlasting miracle that shall not be cut off.